So the second essay of the genealogy has recently attracted considerable amounts of attention. It ostensibly develops an account of the origins of the feeling of guilt, which is marked by at least the appearance of tight conceptual coherence. The first essay begins with an analysis of the concept of, excuse me, the essay begins with an analysis of the concept of conscience, proceeds to an examination of bad conscience, and concludes with a view of more bad conscience, or guilt itself, with an emphasis throughout the essay on the crucial influence of socialization on the development of all these phenomena. Now, there remains much disagreement among scholars over the precise structure of Nietzsche's account, and indeed, over the precise nature of the feeling of guilt, which is its purported object. This object is what I shall call Christian guilt, or the feeling of guilt as it operates and is understood in the Christian morality. This much we can gather not only from the role played by Christianity in Nietzsche's account, but also from the emphasis he places on the Christian view of conscience in the brief review of the second essay he offers in Ecceomo. This is a quote, this is the first quote on the handout. The second inquiry, he writes, offers the psychology of conscience, which is now, as people may believe, the voice of God in man. Now, in contrast to a widespread line of interpretation, I will argue that Nietzsche's objective in the second essay is not, at least not only and perhaps not primarily, to challenge the non-naturalistic account of the feeling of guilt promoted by the Christian outlook, namely guilt as a manifestation of the voice of God in man, but to show that the representation of guilt is not so much an account of the ordinary feeling of guilt, that is to say, the diminution of self-esteem we experience when we fall short of our own normative expectations, as it is the product of the exploitation of the human susceptibility to that feeling as an instrument of self-directed cruelty. <coughs> Christian guilt is therefore not a moral emotion responsive to reasons, but what I shall call, and I'll come back to that at the very end of the paper, a rational passion, by which I mean a passion to which only a rational being is susceptible, because it essentially exploits his responsiveness to reasons, and which, unlike other passions, not only overrides or bypasses, but actually corrupts his responsiveness to reason. Now, I do not mean to suggest, however, that Nietzsche has nothing of particular interest to say about the ordinary feeling of guilt. On the contrary, his genealogical account of guilt, of Christian guilt, presupposes an intriguing view of ordinary guilt, which differs in important respects from the view of ordinary guilt which is sanctioned by the Christian outlook, and I shall have to consider at least some aspects of it. So let me begin, and I'll start with conscience. Since the feeling of guilt is a species of bad conscience, Nietzsche begins his investigation with an examination of the concept of conscience. The concept of conscience typically designates an inner voice, the famed voice of conscience, which reminds each of us of our obligations. Nietzsche, who rejects the idea that it is the voice of God in man, asks how, as a matter of empirical fact, such a, such a structure could have developed in the human psyche. Insofar as it is a voice reminding us of our obligations and commitments, conscience is what he calls the will's memory. 
Now, since undertaking an obligation or a commitment is like making a promise, the possession of a memory of the will underwrites what he calls the right to make promises. For we do not have the right to make promises unless we have the ability to keep them, and this ability requires, of course, that we be reminded of them. Now, Nietzsche observes that our minds are naturally endowed with an active forgetfulness by virtue of which it disposes of impressions that would otherwise linger in and clutter our consciousness. He infers that the will's memory is not part of our innate natural endowment, but constitutes a capacity that has to be bred into us. This is a quote. This is the second quote on the handout. It is by no means a mere passive inability to be rid of an impression once it has made its impact. Nor is it just indigestion caused by giving your word on some occasion and finding that you cannot cope. Instead, it is an active desire not to let go, a desire to keep on desiring what has been on some occasion desired. Really, it is the will's memory. So that a world of strange new things, circumstances, and even acts of will may be placed quite safely between the original I will, I shall do, and the actual discharge of the will, its act, without breaking this long chain of the will. So by defining this memory of the will as a matter of keeping on desiring what has been on some occasion desired, Nietzsche suggests that it is more than the memory of the fact that I once desired something. It is rather a perpetuation of desire itself. Nietzsche's use of the word desire in this context may cause some confusion. For a memory of the will is not simply the perpetuation of some wish or inclination I once had. The will to be remembered here is an obligation undertaken or a promise made. I will. I shall do. To define this memory in terms of keeping on desiring is simply to indicate that what is to be perpetuated is the motivation itself, not the awareness that I was once so motivated. In making a promise, I express the intention or the desire in a broad sense to do what I have promised. The will's memory simply is the perpetuation of this desire. So much for conscience for now. Now Nietzsche's inquiry then proceeds to an examination of the concept of indebtedness because guilt and indebtedness bear a close etymological connection. The German word for will, schuld, also means debt or indebtedness. Nietzsche takes this etymological connection to suggest a conceptual one and concludes that we stand to learn much about guilt from an analysis of indebtedness. Now, the feeling of indebtedness arises in the context of contractual relationships which are essentially relationships established by promising, and so involve the whole apparatus designed to make such promising possible, particularly the recourse to the infliction of pain. This is number three on your handout. Precisely here, he writes, promises are made. Precisely here, the person making the promise has to have a memory made for him. Precisely here, we can guess, is a repository of hard, cruel, painful things. The debtor, in order to inspire confidence that the promise of repayment will be honored, 
in order to give a guarantee of the solemnity and sanctity of his promise, and in order to etch the duty and obligation of repayment into his conscience, to pawn something to the creditor by means of the contrast, uh, the contract in case he does not pay, something which he still possesses in control, his body, his wife, his freedom, or his life. Now, a contractual relationship is established between two parties when one, the debtor, promises to repay the other, the creditor, in some fashion for something, such as a monetary loan, some kind of service, that the creditor agrees to provide. If the debtor fails to keep his promise and repay his debt in kind, uh, he is liable to some form of quote-unquote punishment. But Nietzsche emphasizes that punishment in this context, or at, at, very rate, uh, at any rate, a practice that looks like punishment, like inflicting pain on the delinquent debtor, is not an expression of disapproval, more or otherwise. It involves no judgment on the part of either party that the delinquent debtor has acted in an evil or reprehensible way, which makes him deserving of that punishment. It is merely an alternative form of repayment by the debtor for the debt he contracted. Now Nietzsche observes that far and away the preferred form of alternative compensation in cases of delinquency is the infliction of pain. The compensation, he writes, consists in a warrant for entitled to cruelty. And he marvels at the strangeness of this idea. This is number four, which I'm not going to read. It turns out that two strange features in this conception of punishment. First, there's this idea that every injury, the loss of possessions of a loved one and the like, has its equivalent in a specifiable amount of pleasure. The other strange feature of cruelty is the idea that, quote, to make someone suffer is pleasure in its highest form. Now, the conjecture that Nietzsche offers to explain the latter uh, strange feature of cruelty is that it's pleasurable because it gratifies the will to power. Now, I've argued elsewhere that the will to power is the desire to engage in the activity of confronting and overcoming resistance. Cruelty, making someone suffer, is a paradigmatic manifestation of the will to power in the following way. The prospect of suffering necessarily creates resistance in its intended victim, which the cruel individual simply overcomes by managing to make his victim suffer. So when Nietzsche knows that, this is a quote, through punishment of the debtor, the creditor takes part in the rights of the master, he indicates that what the creditor enjoys is not the suffering of the debtor as such, but the overcoming of the resistance which the prospect of this suffering is bound to arouse in the debtor by the very fact that he is made to suffer. Now, it is crucial to note that original contractual relationships for Nietzsche are not relationships of trust between individuals who already possess the right to make promises. This is why the individual who contracted that, quote, has to have a memory made for him through the threat of, quote, hard, cruel, painful things, the purpose of which is to, quote, etch the duty and obligation of repayment into his conscience. So the original debtor's motivation for keeping his promises is the dread of the creditor and his power. He does not consider that his worth or standing is at stake in the keeping of his promises, and therefore he does not regard his failure to do so 
as wrongdoing and his punishment as deserved. The fear of the unpleasant consequences of his promise breaking, which constitutes the original feeling of indebtedness, is therefore not a feeling of guilt, precisely because it does not involve a diminution in his self-esteem. So Nietzsche observes that if a delinquent debtor does not already feel guilty for his indebtedness, the punishment exacted cannot arouse such a feeling for two reasons. The first, of course, is that Nietzsche see, so the debtor sees that you know, what he did is being done to him, and so uh, it's being done to him with a good conscience or uh, you know, with it's approved of, which means that he cannot, as Nietzsche would say, regard what he did as reprehensible as such. But second, he could not regard punishment as anything more than a stroke of bad luck or the unfortunate consequence of miscalculation. This is now number five on your handout. <clears throat> I'm going to read only part of it. For millennia, wrongdoers overtaken by punishment have felt something has gone unexpectedly wrong here. Not, I ought not to have done that. They submit it to punishment as you submit to illness or misfortune or death. If in those days there was any criticism of the deed, it came from intelligence. We must certainly seek the actual effect of punishment primarily in the sharpening of intelligence, in the lengthening of the memory, a will to be more cautious, less trusting, to go about things more circumspectly from now on. So the crucial implication of this view is that guilt cannot consist of a fear of punishment. For if the fact of punishment cannot arouse the feeling of guilt in those who do not already regard what they did as wrong, and can only make them more cautious and circumspect in continuing to do what they did, then the prospect of punishment will not arouse guilt feelings either, and will amount to nothing more than the apprehension of the unpleasant consequences of further imprudence or miscalculation. Now, one way to bring out this contrast is to point out that if a delinquent debtor came to believe that he has gotten away with it and will escape punishment, no pangs of conscience would remain. By contrast, if he felt guilty, the conviction that he would escape punishment for his wrongdoing would not make him feel any less guilty. And so guilt cannot be the fear of punishment. So now, bad conscience. Nietzsche describes the origin of bad conscience in the following terms. Now I'm going to read uh, two fairly long passages because they are very important. The first is this. I look on bad conscience as a serious illness to which man was forced to succumb by the pressure of the most fundamental of all changes which he experienced. That change whereby he finally found himself imprisoned within the confines of society and peace. It must have been no different for this semi-animal, happily adapted to the wilderness, war, the wandering life and adventure, than it was for the sea animals when they were, when they were forced to either be, become land animals or perish. At one go, all instincts become devalued and suspended. They felt they were clumsy at performing the simplest task. They didn't have their familiar guide anymore for this new unknown world, those regulating impulses which unconsciously led them to safety. The poor things were reduced to relying on thinking, inference, and the connecting of cause with effect. Now, it's very important to note, by the way, that Nietzsche's conception of the state of nature prior to socialization 
is not, as it is for Freud, the helpless and dreadful state of individuals ill-suited for solitary life in nature. Nietzsche's pre-social individual, by contrast, is happily adapted to the wilderness. Nietzsche therefore assumes that it must have taken an act of violence to tear him away from this happily adapted state. And he attributes this initial act of violence to a small group of strong individuals, some pack of blonde beasts of prey, a conqueror and master race, as he puts it, who are bent on exercising their will to power in the, quote, shaping of a population which had up till now been unrestrained and shapeless into a fixed form. Now, what Nietzsche is most interested in here is one particular effect of this forced socialization, namely a change in the individual's relationship to his instincts. As he puts it, at one go, all instincts become uh, were evaluated and suspended. Now, the very instincts or regular regulating impulses, which were once reliable guides to safety, become in the new social conditions of existence and come to be seen as dangerous liabilities. I can no longer trust that the pursuit of an impulse I feel in a given circumstance will be in my best interest. And I must instead rely on thinking, inference, calculation, and the connecting of cause with effect. Now this first problem, called by, close by socialization, that the old instincts could no longer be trusted, is compounded by another which Nietzsche describes as follows. This is number seven. Meanwhile, he says, the old instincts had not suddenly ceased to make their demands, but it was difficult and seldom possible to give in to them. They mainly had to seek new and, as it were, underground gratifications. All instincts which are not discharged outwardly turn inwards. This is what I call the internalization of man. All those instincts of the wild, free, roving man were turned backwards against man himself. Animosity, cruelty, the pleasure of pursuing, raiding, changing, and destroying, all this pitted against a person who had such instincts. That is the origin of bad conscience. So, the origin of bad conscience lies in what Nietzsche calls the internalization of man. I've already noted one aspect of this process of internalization, the emergence of what Nietzsche calls this really dismal thing called reflection, by which the old instincts become objects of reflective awareness. So you can imagine that the picture goes like this. Prior to forced socialization, the individual's point of view is directed outward. His instincts frame this point of view, but they are not its focus. Since he is happily adapted to life in the wilderness, he never has to reflect on, let alone question, those instincts. And when they are frustrated, as they are bound to be from time to time, he is prone to think that the problem is with the outer world, or with his calculations about it, not with those instincts themselves. Under conditions of forced socialization, by contrast, the frustration of the old instincts becomes systematic. And this prompts a reorientation of the individual's point of view, which is now directed inward. His old instincts become objects of reflective awareness and criticisms. After all, they could be the problem. Not to be trusted anymore, they cease to shape the point of view from which he thinks about and evaluates the world and, becomes object, and become objects to which his thought and evaluation are directed. 
Now, the remarkable fact which captures Nietzsche's attention is that this internalization of man does not simply consist of such a reflective reorientation of his point of view towards the inner world of his instincts. It also involves what Nietzsche calls a declaration of war against the old instincts or a devaluation of them. Now, it's no doubt true that given Nietzsche's supposition of an original state of happy adaptation, the individual could only be induced to reflect on his instincts when they become problems or liabilities, as they are, of course, in conditions under which their pursuit has become a source of systematic torment and frustration. But it remains to be seen why their frustration actually prompts a condemnation of these old instincts themselves rather than of the new external conditions that make their satisfaction impossible. And the explanation of this remarkable fact, according to Nietzsche, is that, quote, the old instincts have not suddenly ceased to make their demands. But since they can no longer be discharged outwardly, they turn inwards or against themselves. Now, since, as I noted, Nietzsche singles out cruelty as a paradigmatic instance of the instinct for freedom, he describes bad conscience as, quote, cruelty turned against itself. Though it's true that Nietzsche sometimes describes bad conscience as cruelty the individual directs against himself, but he means against himself insofar as he harbors cruel impulses. So, in other words, bad conscience is not any kind of instinctual deprivation, but only an attack on the instincts of freedom. So this is a quote, this is the next quote, number eight. He makes that clear. The instinct of freedom forcibly made latent, the instinct of freedom forced back, repressed, incarcerating within itself, and finally able to discharge and unleash itself only against itself. That, and that alone, is bad conscience in its beginnings. Now Nietzsche suggests two ways of explaining why the instinct of freedom can discharge itself only against itself in this manner. First, since under conditions of forced socialization, the instinct needs both to be suppressed and to be discharged, it makes good economic sense, to borrow a Freudian phrase, to make its own suppression an occasion for discharge. Second, Nietzsche also suggests that under conditions of forced socialization, the indiscriminate suppression of by the individual of, of any or all of its instincts could well threaten the coherence and survival of the social organization and is therefore actively inhibited. I mean, you need some instinctual gratification, or you need some instincts to operate well to make life in society possible. Now, bad conscience is obviously an unpleasant feeling. Nietzsche notes that we speak of the pang or the sting of conscience. And the individual with a bad conscience feels bad not because his old instincts are not denied satisfaction, he feels bad for having them in the first place. But if you think about it, one can feel bad for having certain instincts in all sorts of ways. Let me give you some examples. The individual forced into society might regret having cruel instincts, which, by now being denied satisfaction, have become a source of perpetual torment. Or the individual who subscribes to Schopenhauer's conception of happiness in terms of peace and contentment will deplore his cruel instincts because he deplores having any instincts at all, since their presence proves to be the main obstacle to his happiness. He feels bad about having them, much in the way the prisoner who aspires to freedom feels bad about his shackles. Finally, the Christian 
deplores his cruel instincts because he believes that having them diminishes his worth as a person. He feels bad about having them in the way the sinner feels bad about his sinful proclivities. So clearly, the devaluation of instincts in the first two cases is going to be prudential. Cruel instincts make one unable to achieve happiness. Whereas in the last case, it is more. Cruel instincts make one undeserving of happiness. Now, the individuals who regrets or deplores his instincts on prudential grounds by recognizing in them obstacles to his happiness is not motivated by self-directed cruelty. His purpose in condemning his instincts is not to make himself suffer. Now, it is true that like the Schopenhauerian ascetic, he might deliberately and systematically deny his instinct satisfaction, but it is to the end of liberating himself from them by becoming indifferent to the suffering caused by their frustration. In this case, he will see the war he wages against his instincts not as only a means to his eventual liberation from them. When the war the individual wages against his instincts is motivated by self-directed cruelty, by contrast, it becomes an end. He denies his instinct satisfaction not in order to liberate himself from them, but in order to enjoy the very suffering their frustration causes him, which might, incidentally and perversely enough, require him to keep them alive and well. Now still, there remains a difference between the deliberate masochistic frustration of one's cruel impulses, what Nietzsche calls animal bad conscience, and the condemnation of those impulses as evil, which makes one feel guilty for having them, or more bad conscience. Changing the direction of cruelty, turning it in words, does not necessarily take the form of a moral condemnation of it. So, although the feeling of guilt may well be a form of bad conscience, it is self-directed cruelty manifested as moral self-reproach. The analysis of bad conscience has not yet supplied an analysis of guilt. Okay, so now let's turn to the phenomenon which Nietzsche calls the moralization of indebtedness. Now Nietzsche acknowledges that his inquiries into indebtedness and contractual obligation have so far ignored the moralization of these concepts. Now the question, and this is an important one, the question on which commentators are deeply divided concerns the nature of this quote-unquote moralization. This is where uh, I'm going to take a stand. There are, two, there are two ways of looking at it. Is it, on the one hand, the process whereby the non-moral concepts of indebtedness and contractual obligation become the moral concepts of guilt and duty? Or is it a different process whereby the concepts of guilt and obligation, already understood in a generic moral sense, are enrolled in the service of the aims of morality understood now in a specific sense, namely as slave morality, or as what Brian Leiter has called morality in the pejorative sense? Let's see. Nietzsche defines the moralization of the word should and flicked, which are ambiguous between the moral and pre-moral understanding. He defines it as, quote, this is uh, on your handout, this is an important quote, this is number nine on your handout, as the way they are pushed back into conscience, more precisely the way bad conscience is woven together with the concept of God, or it is their relegation to bad conscience. Now this definition is less than ideally clear. It suggests 
that a moralized feeling of guilt results from the combination of indebtedness with bad conscience, or more precisely, of the use of indebtedness as an instrument of self-directed cruelty. And it also suggests that the possibility of a moralized feeling of guilt requires not just the notion of indebtedness, but of indebtedness towards God. Now, I wish to consider briefly two contrasting lines of interpretation of this passage that are found in the literature. The fundamental premise of the first interpretation is that the feeling of indebtedness is not yet a feeling of guilt, but becomes so through its association with bad conscience. Uh, I'm going to quote uh, Matthias Fischer here, but of course this is a view that has been defended by others as well, such as Aaron Ridley and, and others. So as Matthias Fischer puts it, quote, failing to pay one's debts by no means decreases one's worth as a person simply because there's no point of view from which one's overall worth as a person is assessed. Now the implication of this passage is the feeling of guilt is the feeling of indebtedness when one's worth as a person is at stake in the repayment of the debt. The failure to repay my debt concerns me only because of the unpleasant consequences my delinquency might bring upon me, and not because it decreases my worth as a person. My failure to fulfill a contractual obligation will arouse a feeling of guilt only if I take this obligation to possess a special character. It is an obligation in the fulfillment of which my worth as a person is somehow at stake. And to, to give it a name, I propose to call it a categorical obligation in order to distinguish it from the purely prudential obligation involved in pre-moral contractual relationships. Nietzsche remarks that when my failure to repay my debt is the consequence of negligence or miscalculation, I may criticize myself for my imprudence or my incompetence. But feeling incompetent, stupid, or small, even if I believe that I have no one to blame for it but myself, is not yet feeling guilty. Only my worth as a competent, proficient, capable agent is at stake, not my worth as a person. For my prudence matters to me only if the determinate ends it enables me to realize matter to me in the first place. Of course, I may, under certain circumstances, deplore my imprudence not just because of the unpleasant consequences it brings upon me, but also because of what it tells about me as a person. In this case, however, I regard being prudent, if only implicitly, as a categorical obligation. Now, it's important to note, because there's a lot of confusion about this, then in its pre-moral form, the feeling of indebtedness can already be pushed back into the bad conscience and used as an instrument of self-directed cruelty. So I could imagine that harboring cruel impulses, as I do, is a breach of contract and torture myself with thoughts of terrific punishments for harboring them. But if the feeling of indebtedness produces no diminution in the delinquent debtor's self-esteem, it is hard to see how it could be marshaled to produce more bad conscience or a feeling of guilt. Now, Risser acknowledges this difficulty and goes on to suggest that Christianity proposes or provides a solution for it by introducing the notion of indebtedness towards God, which, this is Risser again, turns it into a deep sense of being a complete failure with respect to what one is first and more foremost, naming God's creature. Now the problem is this, is that if, as Risser argues, the feeling of indebtedness itself by no means decreases one's worth as a person, it's very hard to see how making it indebtedness towards God would have this effect. 
If indebtedness is to affect self-esteem, it must be in virtue of its character as indebtedness, not in virtue of who one is indebted to. It must be being a delinquent debtor as such that decreases one's worth as a person. But in that case, the feeling of indebtedness would already be a feeling of guilt, and indebtedness towards God would only intensify the feeling of guilt. Now, there might be ways to improve Rissa's proposal in an attempt to circumvent these difficulties. So, for instance, you might think that God expects us, the Christian God expects us not only to follow his commandments, but also to treat them as categorical obligations. That might be ways to do. But, uh, besides very uncertain prospects of success, the required emendations would involve the addition, the addition of essential detail, such as what I just mentioned, which neither Risser nor Nietzsche, for that matter, take the pain to specify. So this difficulty with Risser's proposal invites an alternative line of interpretation, according to which the feeling of indebtedness would involve, prior to its moralization, a genuine commitment to the categorical uh, authority of the obligations one has undertaken, such, such that the failure to discharge these obligations would cause a decrease in one's worth as a person. On this view, which is proposed by Simon May, the feeling of indebtedness would already be a feeling of guilt. And I quote May here. This is uh, number 11 in the <clears throat> The debtor-creditor relationship successfully models guilt only because it already contains the latter's key presupposition namely of personal accountability, which he uh, specifies as being a strong sense that one's obligations are justified. I take it, Simon may not agree with me about this, but I, I will assume that it's categorically justified, but uh, this is an relation. The chief advantage of this proposal is that by taking the feeling of indebtedness to involve a decrease in one's worth as a person, it manages to explain how pushing back indebtedness into bad conscience would produce a distinctively more bad conscience or a feeling of guilt. More bad conscience, as you recall, is self-directed cruelty manifested under the guise of more self-reproach or reproach of oneself as a person. Self-directed cruelty could assume this guise by representing an individual's continuing to harbor cruel instincts as the violation of a contractual obligation. Given that such a violation, uh, such, such a, a violation uh, decreases your worth as a person. Now, the obvious problem we are left with by May's proposal is that if the feeling of indebtedness is already a feeling of guilt, it becomes unclear what the moralization of the concepts of guilt and duty could accomplish. May himself suggests that the moralization of guilt is, quote, defined by the idea that one's human nature is essentially and undischargeably guilty and unsatisfactory. So I think there's a suggestion there, and I want to develop it. We may develop this suggestion by recalling first, this is important, actually it's not always noted, that Nietzsche emphasizes the fact, twice, that as a consequence of their moralization, the concepts of guilt and duty become the exclusive property of bad conscience. This indicates that moralized guilt and duty can only evoke a diminished self-esteem in the agent who experiences that. And of course, it's easy to see how the association of bad conscience with the concept of God, particularly in the notion of indebtedness towards God, could achieve this. The notion of indebtedness towards God is, in effect, the notion of an inexpiable guilt. 
And the contractual obligation that cannot be fulfilled therefore represents a normative standard, a duty, that is designed only to leave man, quote, palpably convinced of his own absolute unworthiness. So let me now develop this interpretation of the moralization of guilt. According to the interpretation I'm proposing here, Nietzsche takes the Christian representation of guilt to be not a particular account of the ordinary feeling of guilt, but a perversion of the human susceptibility to that feeling. This, in turn, supposes that he has an account of this ordinary feeling of guilt. And I believe that he does, and that this account differs in significant respects from the account that is officially sanctioned by the Christian outlook. In particular, Nietzsche argues that the ordinary feeling of guilt is not an innate disposition whose explanation requires the invocation of non-natural entities such as God. It is, on the contrary, an acquired disposition which develops under the causal pressure of largely natural forces. His own account, this is important, begins with the surmise that the susceptibility to the feeling of guilt emerges from the original legal practice of making contracts. This is number 12. In this sphere of legal obligations, then, we find the breeding ground of the moral conceptual world of guilt, conscience, duty, sacred duty. Since Nietzsche insists that the original feeling of indebtedness is not tantamount to the feeling of guilt, we must ask how the latter could emerge from the former. So as Nietzsche understands it, feeling is feeling indebted in a way that decreases one's worth as a person. What requires explanation is therefore what one's worth as a person amounts to, and how it could have come to be at stake in the fulfillment of one's contractual obligations. Now the need for contractual relationships motivates the enterprise, as you might recall, of breeding an animal with the right to make promises, or with a conscience. And this, Nietzsche observes, this is a quote, is precisely what constitutes the long history of the origins of responsibility. So the possession of the conscience, of a conscience, according to Nietzsche, is what makes me a responsible agent. Now, it is crucial to understand what Nietzsche means by responsibility in this context. Calling someone responsible might first denote the fact that he is free, and as Nietzsche puts it, could have done otherwise, so that his action is imputable to him rather than merely to some part of him or to some event altogether external to him. But, in the second place, calling someone responsible might also refer to the fact that he can be trusted or relied upon, that he is someone who truly has the right to make promises because his word, once given, is good and secure. Now Nietzsche is interested primarily in the second sense of responsibility. A responsible agent is one who can be trusted or relied upon. He calls the individual who has become fully responsible in this sense the sovereign individual. So now I go back to the earlier part of the essay because it provides a clue to Nietzsche's account of uh, the feeling of guilt. We gain a more precise understanding of the character of the sovereign individual by examining the process through which he is produced. Nietzsche came, claims that conscience, or the will's memory, is bred through pain dubs the most powerful aid to mnemonics. It is the prospect of the pain incurred for breaking one's promises that ensures the perpetuation of the motivation to keep them. However, it is crucial to note 
that the fear of pain plays a merely enabling role in the development of conscience, but is not constitutive of it. For the fear of pain, which initially motivates the individual to control those among his intervening desires and emotions that conflict with his promise keeping, can eventually become replaced by what Nietzsche describes as a feeling of power, of freedom. The frustration of conflicting intervening desires in order to fulfill a promise is, of course, itself a source of pain. And the individual who learns to overcome this pain in this manner, that is to say, learns to overcome the resistance that is opposed by those conflicting desires, comes to derive, or can come to derive, a feeling of power and freedom from this overcoming. It is at the end of this process, when the feeling of freedom and power has replaced the fear of pain as the motivation for promise-keeping, that we find a sovereign individual. Quote, number, uh, number 13, I'll read only part of it. The free man, the possessor of a durable, unbreakable will, thus has his own standard of value in the possession of such a will. Viewing others from his own standpoint, he respects or despises, he confers an honor when he places his trust, gives his word as something which can be relied on, because he is strong enough to remain upright in the face of mishap or even in the face of fate. The proud realization of the extraordinary privilege of responsibility, the awareness of this rare freedom and power over himself and his destiny has penetrated him to the depth and becomes an instinct, his dominant instinct. This sovereign man calls it his conscience. So the conscience of the sovereign individual is now, quote, an actual awareness of power and freedom. The driving force, in other words, behind the conscience of the sovereign individual is not the fear of pain, but the enjoyment of the feeling of power. Now Nietzsche doesn't explain why an agent becomes responsible only when the feeling of power is substituted for the fear of pain in motivating his promise keeping. But we might offer the following surmise. Note, first of all, that we don't call responsible anyone on whom we can depend to do what he has promised to do. For instance, we will not just judge trustworthy or responsible an agent who keeps his promises only because he fears the unpleasant consequences of breaking them. And one plausible motivation for our attitude is, in this case, is the recognition that the agent does not care about keeping his promises as such, and would break them the moment the unpleasant consequences of so doing would be either avoidable or outweighed by the pleasures for the sake of which he would break his promises. This suggests that we consider an agent trustworthy or responsible only if he finds some positive satisfaction in promise-keeping as such. Now, an agent who derives a feeling of power or freedom from his promise-keeping thereby finds some positive satisfaction in it. It gratifies his will to power. But of course, the pleasure derived from satisfying the will to power could conceivably still be outweighed by the pleasure afforded by the gratification of other stronger impulses. So Nietzsche concludes that we consider truly responsible or sovereign only the individual in whom the instinct for freedom, the will to power, has become, as he puts it, the dominant instinct. Now, and this is a move that is unmotivated for Nietzsche, but very important to his account. Nietzsche goes one significant step further. Promise-keeping 
And the self-mastery it requires is a source not only of pleasure, but also, as he puts it, of pride, of self-esteem. The possession of a durable, reliable will is for the sovereign individual a standard of value in terms of which he determines what is respectable, honorable, or contemptible. Being responsible is therefore not just a pleasant state in which his desire for power is gratified. It is a standing or status in which the value of power or freedom is instantiated. Being responsible makes him honorable worthy of respect. The notion of responsibility plausibly frames now the concept of personhood as a standing that warrants respect. Nietzsche appears to suppose that it is so in the early legal framework which constitutes a conceptual breeding ground for the feeling of guilt. And his concept of responsibility, understood as the ability to govern one's behavior in accordance with obligations or commitments, bears a close resemblance to the notion of rationality which has long been thought to distinguish human beings from animals, and indeed, says Nietzsche, constitutes man's sense of superiority over the animals. Now, on the view I'm attributing to Nietzsche, then, once the right to make promises becomes, quote, the proud realization of a privilege or evidence of status or standing, the breaking of a promise will, in and of itself, decrease one's worth as a person in the way that's characteristic of ordinary guilt, since it puts the individual standing as a responsible agent into question. Now, there's one feature of the ordinary conception of guilt that I think this particular account illuminates, and, and it's a feature that intrigues Nietzsche greatly himself, and it's the connection between guilt and punishment. So according to Nietzsche, the legal backdrop of contractual relationships is also supposed to illuminate the connection between guilt and punishment or suffering, and this is uh, number 14. In the same way, it was here that the uncanny and perhaps inextricable link-up between the ideas of guilt and suffering was first crocheted together. Now, there are two possible questions you may, you may ask. Okay? You may ask, well, what, uh, how does the victim of a wrong experience the punishment of the perpetrator? Or you may ask, how does the guilty experience this punishment? Now, since I'm interested in the psychology of guilt, I'm going to focus only on the latter question. Now, what's, what's characteristic of, of the guilty's relationship to his punishment? Well, first of all, the guilty not only accepts his punishment, which he regards as deserved, but he also welcomes it as a way of expiating his guilt. Now, it is very tempting to suppose, of course, that uh, punishment expiates his guilt by providing reparation for his wrongdoing. But this reparative view of punishment faces some significant difficulties. In the first place, and this is something that Nietzsche uh, observes himself, Punishment is often of such a nature, you know, various kinds of suffering or deprivation inflicted upon the perpetrator, that it can hardly constitute a reparation for the harm done. How can depriving the thief of his freedom compensate his victims for the loss of their wealth? I mean, go ask the people who invested with Bernard Madoff, for example. <laughs> now, confronted with this problem, Nietzsche suggests, as we know, that the suffering of the guilty provides the victim of his wrongdoing a certain pleasure pleasure of cruelty, which compensates him for the, for the wrong done to him. But the deepest difficulty with the reparative view of punishment, however, lies in the supposition that the guilty welcomes his punishment because he wishes, before all, to repair the particular damage caused by his wrongdoing. But this, as Gabrielle Taylor has argued, is not the case. 
This is a quote from Taylor, 15. The important feature of guilt is that the thought of the guilty concentrates on herself as the doer of the deed. Having brought about what is forbidden, she has harmed herself. She has put herself in a position where repayment from her is due. But the point of the payment is not, or is only incidentally, that the moral wrong should be righted. This is this. The writing of a moral wrong may well be the form that the repayment takes. But from the point of view of the guilty person, this is only a means towards the end. That she should be rid of the burden, that she should be able again to live with herself. The painfulness of the guilt feelings is therefore explained by the uneasiness of the person concerned, the person concerned feels about herself. What matters to the guilty, in other words, is the fact that by violating her obligations, she has diminished her standing or her worth as a person, and not primarily, at least, the fact that she has caused harm in doing so. Accordingly, the point of undergoing punishment is to restore her damaged standing, not to repair the harm she has caused, even if the punishment provides such reparation as apparently for Nietzsche it always does. Now, Nietzsche's account, I think, helps us to see how punishment could have assumed this peculiar significance for the guilty. In his view, remember, the feeling of guilt is a consequence of the breaking of a promise. Now he observes that even in the pre-war legal contra uh, contractual framework, out of which the concept of guilt is supposed to emerge, the breaking of a promise is already wrong in two different respects. There is what he calls the immediate damage done by the agent's breaking of some particular promise. And then there is the loss of his standing as a responsible agent who has the right to make promises. This is part of the quote number 16 here, the sentence in the middle. The immediate damage done by the offender is what we're talking about least. Quite apart from this, the lawbreaker is a breaker, somebody who has broken his contract and his work. So in this pre-moral contractual context, Nietzsche suggests, the standing loss is simply that of a trustworthy, reliable promise keeper which presumably matters to the agent on essentially prudential grounds. In losing that standing, he deprives himself of the benefits of contractual relationships, particularly those that bind him to a community. The purpose of punishment in this case is not simply to repair the immediate damage he has done, but to attempt to, res to restore his status as a reliable promise keeper. Likewise, in the context of moralized indebtedness, the wrongdoer's violation of his obligation affects his self-esteem by putting his worth as a person into question. What he welcomes in punishment is not the opportunity to repair the immediate damage his transgression has caused, but an opportunity to restore his standing as a responsible agent. That is to say, not just somebody who is reliable and trustworthy uh, contract partner in the eyes of others, but uh, somebody who is a sovereign individual uh, one who masters his desires and emotions and is so able to conduct his life in accordance with the commitments he has undertaken. So to restore his standing, the promise breaker would have first to accept punishment or regard it as deserved. Such acceptance would indicate that he recognizes the normatively binding character of his contractual obligations, what Nietzsche calls the solemnity and sanctity of his promise. And, it, and he acknowledges also that he was wrong in, uh, in violating them. But this alone, of course, doesn't suffice to qualify him as a responsible agent who has the right to make promises. To have this right, he must also have acquired a memory of the will, that is to say, the ability to maintain his motivation to fulfill his promises, regardless of intervening events and desires. In other words, 
To merit, to merit the standing of a responsible agent, he must not only sincerely believe that he ought to keep his promises, he must also prove capable of doing so. His ability to endure the punishment would aim to provide precisely such a proof. Keeping one's promises requires the capacity to withstand the suffering caused by the deliberate frustration of conflicting desires and emotions. By welcoming and withstanding this punishment, the wrongdoer would seek to demonstrate that he still possesses this capacity, contrary to what his present wrongdoing may suggest. This may also be why it is not untypical of the wrongdoer who seeks to restore his responsible standing to find mere compensation for the particular wrong he has done insufficient and to insist on overcompensation, what might look like excessive punishment, in order to provide a firmer proof of his responsibility. So it's not always the case. Well, can we discuss this? So let me conclude. Let me come to the, this view uh, that I, to which I alluded at the beginning, that uh, Christian guilt for Nietzsche, in fact, is, uh, is a rational passion. In the interpretation I'm proposing here, Nietzsche's theology of Christian guilt exposes it as a rational passion. Rational passions are passions to which only a rational being is susceptible because they essentially exploit his responsiveness to reasons. Like any, like any other passion, however, rational passions are not themselves responsive to such reasons. But, and this is important, it is a distinctive trait of rational passions that their gratification requires at least the appearance of reasoned responsiveness. It follows that whereas ordinary passions typically will only override or bypass reason, they will not make no pretense to be responsive to reason. Rational passions who need such pretense will often end up corrupting the responsiveness to reason. Let me give you an example. Well, an example that Nietzsche quite likes. The narcissistic passion for thinking well of oneself is an instance of a rational passion. To be susceptible to such a passion, the narcissist must be responsive to norms and the self-assessment they govern. But in order to ensure its own gratification, his passion might also lead him to corrupt these norms so as to ensure a favorable self-assessment. But what I want to suggest is that the Christian's guilt is another instance of a rational passion for Nietzsche. It is the passion for thinking ill of oneself, or as Nietzsche puts it, this is a quote, the will to find oneself, to find, find himself guilty and condemned without hope of reprieve. Nietzsche argues that Christian guilt operates with normative expectations that have been distorted by his passion for self-debasement. As he conceives of it, guilt, Christian guilt, is indebtedness towards God, which is the most extreme development of a particular form of indebtedness or indebtedness towards the ancestors. The individual is justified in feeling indebted only if he believes that God, or the ancestors, has in fact delivered the goods for the possession of which he feels indebted to. Now, the distinctive feature of Christian guilt is that it is inexpiable. It is inexpiable because God's gift is of, is, is of such transcendence and holiness that it cannot be paid off by finite animals, uh, or finite animal beings such as we are. As Nietzsche indicates, the problem is not just that debts cannot be paid off, but that guilt is inexpiable. That is to say, it's not just that the Christian cannot compensate God but that he cannot reclaim his standing as a responsible agent. 
Indeed, insofar as he was never able to fulfill his obligations to God, he could never even claim that standing in the first place. Now, here's the thing. If Christian guilt was responsive to the normative logic of indebtedness, we would expect a loss, in, a loss of belief in the existence and power of God to result in a loss of guilt. As Nietzsche puts it, this is uh, law number 18, <clears throat> we should be justified in deducing with no little probability that from the unstoppable decline in the faith in the Christian God, there is even now a considerable decline in the consciousness of guilt. But Nietzsche observes, this is precisely not what happens. Nietzsche, the facts diverge from this in a terrible way. With the moralization of the concepts guilt and duty and their relegation to bad conscience, we have, in reality, an attempt to reverse the direction of the development I have described, or at least to halt its movement. Now, the prospect for once and for all payment is to be foreclosed. This, of course, leads Nietzsche to surmise that what is at work in Christian guilt is not answerability to existing norms of self-assessment, but their corruption out of self-directed cruelty. Quote, you will already have guessed what has really gone on with all this and behind all this. That will determine to oneself that suppressed cruelty of animal man who has been frightened back into himself and given an inner life. We have here a sort of madness of the will, showing itself in mental cruelty, which is unparalleled. Man's will to find himself guilty and condemned without hope of reprieve. His will to think of himself as punished, without the punishment ever measuring up to the crime. This will to set up an ideal, the holy God, in order to be palpably convinced of his own absolute worthlessness in the face of this ideal. It is not, in other words, because he happens to believe in a transcendent God, to whom he owes more than he can repay that the Christian feels guilty. It is rather because of his will to find himself guilty that he believes in such a God. So in Nietzsche's view then, Christianity did not invent the ordinary concept of guilt, but under the sway of animal bad conscience, transformed it into a perfect instrument of self-directed cruelty by introducing the notion of guilt towards God. Quote, this man of bad conscience, Nietzsche writes, has seized on religious precept in order to provide his self-torture with its most horrific hardness and sharpness. Guilt towards God, this thought becomes an instrument of torture. Now it is self-directed cruelty in the first place, insofar as it is precisely in virtue of harboring animal instincts such as cruelty that man fails to fulfill his obligation towards a holy God. Quote, in God he seizes upon the ultimate antithesis he can find to his real and irredeemable animal instincts, he reinterprets these self-same animal instincts as guilt before God. And it is also a perfect form of self-directed cruelty, insofar as it represents guilt as inexpiable. Prior to its Christian reinterpretation, the distinctive feeling of diminished self-esteem experienced by the guilty could only be an imperfect instrument of self-torture, because guilt could always, in principle, be expiated. One only had to undergo punishment to restore one's worth as a person. Once it is conceived as inexpiable guilt towards God, however, the loss of worth as a person becomes absolute, a loss which nothing can redeem, short of a radical self-denial, a total repudiation of one's animal nature, which of course leads us to the ascetic aspiration, quote, aspiration to a quite different kind of existence. But this, of course, is a story for another time. Thank you.